Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 1 On the Creature Called Man Chapter 1 The Man in the Cave Part 2 the one connection in which it is really relevant and sensible to talk about him as the caveman has been comparatively neglected. People have used this loose term in twenty loose ways, but they have never even looked at their own term for what could really be learned from it. In fact, people have been interested in everything about the caveman except what he did in the cave. Now there does happen to be some real evidence of what he did in the cave. It is little enough, like all the prehistoric evidence, but it is concerned with the real caveman and his cave, and not the literary caveman and his club. And it will be valuable to our sense of reality to consider quite simply what the real evidence is, and not to go beyond it. What was found in the cave was not the club, the horrible, gory club notched with the number of women it had knocked on the head. The cave was not a bluebeard's chamber filled with the skeletons of slaughtered wives. It was not filled with female skulls, all arranged in rows, and all cracked like eggs. It was something quite unconnected, one way or the other, with all the modern phrases and philosophical implications and literary rumors which confused the whole question for us. And if we wish to see as it really is, this authentic glimpse of the morning of the world, it will be far better to conceive even the story of its discovery as some such legend of the land of mourning. It would be far better to tell the tale of what was really found as simply as the tale of heroes finding the golden fleece or the gardens of the Hesperides, if we could so escape from a fog of controversial theories into the clear colors and clean-cut outlines of such a dawn. The old epic poets at least knew how to tell a story, possibly a tall story, but never a twisted story, never a story tortured out of its own shape to fit theories and philosophies invented centuries afterwards. It would be well if modern investigators could describe their discoveries in the bald narrative style of the earliest travelers, and without any of these long, allusive words that are full of irrelevant implication and suggestion. Then we might realize exactly what we do know about the caveman, or, at any rate, about the cave. A priest and a boy entered some time ago a hollow in the hills, and passed into a sort of subterranean tunnel that led into a labyrinth of such sealed and secret corridors of rock. They crawled through cracks that seemed almost impassable. They crept through tunnels that might have been made for moles. They dropped into holes as hopeless as wells. They seemed to be burying themselves alive seven times over, beyond the hope of resurrection. This is but the commonplace of all such courageous exploration. But what is needed here is someone who shall put such stories in the primary light, in which they are not commonplace. There is, for instance, something strangely symbolic in the accident that the first intruders into that sunken world were a priest and a boy, the types of the antiquity and of the youth of the world. But here I am even more concerned with the symbolism of the boy than with that of the priest. Nobody who remembers boyhood needs to be told what it might be to a boy, 
to enter, like Peter Pan, under a roof at the roots of all the trees and go deeper and deeper till he reach what William Morris called the very roots of the mountains. Suppose somebody, with that simple and unspoilt realism that is a part of innocence, to pursue that journey to its end, not for the sake of what he could deduce or demonstrate in some dusty magazine controversy, but simply for the sake of what he could see. What he did see at last was a cavern so far from the light of day that it might have been the legendary Dom Daniel cavern that was under the floor of the sea. This secret chamber of rock, when illuminated after its long night of unnumbered ages, revealed on its walls large and sprawling outlines diversified with colored earths, and when they followed the lines of them they recognized, across that vast and void of ages, the movement and the gesture of a man's hand. They were drawings or paintings of animals, and they were drawn or painted not only by a man, but by an artist. Under whatever archaic limitations, they showed that love of the long sweeping or the long wavering line which any man who has ever drawn or tried to draw will recognize, and about which no artist will allow himself to be contradicted by any scientist. They showed the experimental and adventurous spirit of the artist, the spirit that does not avoid but attempt difficult things, as where the draftsman had represented the action of the stag when he swings his head clean round and noses towards his tail, an action familiar enough in the horse. But there are many modern animal painters who would set themselves something of a task in rendering it truly. In this and twenty other details, it is clear that the artist had watched animals with a certain interest and presumably a certain pleasure. In that sense, it would seem that he was not only an artist, but a naturalist, the sort of naturalist who is really natural. Now, it is needless to note, except in passing, that there is nothing whatever in the atmosphere of that cave to suggest the bleak and pessimistic atmosphere of that journalistic cave of the winds that blows and bellows about us with countless echoes concerning the caveman. So far as any human character can be hinted at by such traces of the past, that human character is quite human and even humane. It is certainly not the ideal of an inhuman character like the abstraction invoked in popular science. When novelists and educationists and psychologists of all sorts talk about the caveman, they never conceive him in connection with anything that is really in the cave. When the realist of the sex novel writes, Red sparks danced in Dagmar Doubledick's brain. He felt the spirit of the caveman rising within him. The novelist's readers would be very much disappointed if Dagmar only went off and drew large pictures of cows on the drawing-room wall. When the psychoanalyst writes to a patient, The submerged instincts of the caveman are doubtless prompting you to gratify a violent impulse. He does not refer to the impulse to paint in watercolors, or to make conscientious studies of how cattle swing their heads when they graze. Yet we do know for a fact that the caveman did these mild and innocent things. And we have not the most minute speck of evidence that he did any of the violent and ferocious things. In other words, the caveman, as commonly presented to us, is simply a myth, or rather, a muddle. For a myth has at least an imaginative outline of truth, 
The whole of the current way of talking is simply a confusion and a misunderstanding, founded on no sort of scientific evidence, and valued only as an excuse for a very modern mood of anarchy. If any gentleman wants to knock a woman about, he can surely be a cad without taking away the character of the caveman, about whom we know next to nothing, except what we can gather from a few harmless and pleasing pictures on a wall. But this is not the point about the pictures or the particular moral here to be drawn from them. That moral is something much larger and simpler. So large and simple that when it is first stated it will sound childish. And indeed, it is in the highest sense childish. And that is why I have in this apologue, in some sense, seen it through the eyes of a child. It is the biggest of all the facts really facing the boy in the cavern, and is perhaps too big to be seen. If the boy was one of the flock of the priest, it may be presumed that he had been trained in a certain quality of common sense, that common sense that often comes to us in the form of tradition. In that case, he would simply recognize the primitive man's work as the work of a man. Interesting, but in no way incredible in being primitive. He would see what was there to see, and he would not be tempted into seeing what was not there by any evolutionary excitement or fashionable speculation. If he had heard of such things, he would admit, of course, that the speculations might be true, and were not incompatible with the facts that were true. The artist may have had another side to his character, besides that which he has alone left on record in his works of art. The primitive man may have taken a pleasure in beating women, as well as in drawing animals. All we can say is that the drawings record the one, but not the other. It may be true that when the caveman's finished jumping on his mother, or his wife as the case may be, he loves to hear the little brook a-gurgling, and also to watch the deer as they come down to drink at the brook. These things are not impossible, but they are irrelevant. The common sense of the child could confine itself to learning from the facts what the facts have to teach. And the pictures in the cave are very nearly all the facts there are. So far as that evidence goes, the child would be justified in assuming that a man had represented animals with rock and red ochre, for the same reason as he himself was in the habit of trying to represent animals with charcoal and red chalk. The man had drawn a stag just as the child had drawn a horse, because it was fun. The man had drawn a stag with his head turned as the child had drawn a pig with his eyes shut, because it was difficult. The child and the man, being both human, would be united by the brotherhood of men, and the brotherhood of men is even nobler when it bridges the abyss of ages than when it bridges only the chasm of class. But anyhow, he would see no evidence of crude evolutionism, because there is none to be seen. If somebody told him that the pictures had all been drawn by St. Francis of Assisi out of pure and saintly love of animals, there could be nothing in the cave to contradict it. Indeed, I once knew a lady who half-humorously suggested that the cave was a creche, in which the babies were put to be specially safe, and that colored animals were drawn on the walls to amuse them, very much as diagrams of elephants and giraffes adorn a modern infant school. And though this was but a jest, it does draw attention to some of the other assumptions that we make only too readily. The pictures do not prove even that the cavemen lived in caves, any more than the discovery of a wine cellar in Balaam, long after that suburb had been destroyed by human or divine wrath, would prove that the Victorian middle classes lived entirely underground. 
The cave might have had a special purpose like the cellar. It might have been a religious shrine, or a refuge in war, or the meeting place of a secret society, or all sorts of things. But it is quite true that its artistic decoration has much more of the atmosphere of a nursery than of any of these nightmares of anarchical fury and fear. I have conceived a child as standing in the cave, and it is easy to conceive any child, modern or immeasurably remote, as making a living gesture as if to pat the painted beasts upon the wall. In that gesture, there is a foreshadowing, as we shall see later, of another cavern and another child. But suppose the boy had not been taught by a priest, but by a professor, by one of the professors who simplified the relation of men and beasts to a mere evolutionary variation. Suppose the boy saw himself, with the same simplicity and sincerity, as a mere Mowgli, running with the pack of nature, and roughly indistinguishable from the rest save by a relative and recent variation. What would be for him the simplest lesson of that strange stone picture book? After all, it would come back to this, that he had dug very deep and found the place where a man had drawn a picture of a reindeer. But he would dig a good deal deeper before he found a place where a reindeer had drawn a picture of a man. That sounds like a truism, but in this connection it is really a very tremendous truth. He might descend to depths unthinkable. He might sink into sunken continents as strange as remote stars. He might find himself in the inside of the world as far from men as the other side of the moon. He might see in those cold chasms or colossal terraces of stone, traced in the faint hieroglyphic of the fossil, the ruins of lost dynasties of biological life, rather like the ruins of successive creations and separate universes than the stages in the story of one. He would find the trail of monsters blindly developing in directions outside all our common imagery of fish and bird, groping and grasping and touching life with every extravagant elongation of horn and tongue and tentacle, growing a forest of fantastic caricatures of the claw and the fin and the finger. But nowhere would he find one finger that had traced one significant line upon the sand, nowhere one claw that had even begun to scratch the faint suggestion of a form. To all appearance, the thing would be as unthinkable in all those countless cosmic variations of forgotten eons as it would be in the beasts and birds before our eyes. The child would no more expect to see it than to see the cat scratch on the wall a vindictive caricature of the dog. The childish common sense would keep the most evolutionary child from expecting to see anything like that. Yet, in the traces of the rude and recently evolved ancestors of humanity, he would have seen exactly that. It must surely strike him as strange that men so remote from him should be so near, and that beasts so near to him should be so remote. To his simplicity, it must seem at least odd that he could not find any trace of the beginning of any arts among any animals. That is the simplest lesson to learn in the cavern of the colored pictures. Only, it is too simple to be learnt. It is the simple truth that man does differ from the brutes in kind, and not in degree. And the proof of it is here. 
that it sounds like a truism to say that the most primitive man drew a picture of a monkey, and that it sounds like a joke to say that the most intelligent monkey drew a picture of a man. Something of division and disproportion has appeared, and it is unique. Art is the signature of man. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>